Well, open your Bible to John 10. We've read the passage. I want to start off with a few comments that will just help us get our bearings in John chapter 10. We've done this regularly this year as we've moved through the New Testament very quickly, just sort of dropping in in different passages. We've said over and over it's important to know what's happening. It's important to understand the book that we're in. It's important to make sense of the context of what's happening. And so we're going to try to do all of those things this morning as we get going with John 10. The Gospel of John many times is called a book of signs. A book of signs. It's because all the way through this Gospel, there are punctuation points where Jesus performs a sign or a miracle. And I've listed those out on your notes. You can see them on the screen. You may note that on the screen, I have shaded two of those passages, two of those references in red. And it's because those two passages go together. In John chapter 2, Jesus cleared the temple. He ran off the money changers, the animals, uh, the exchange, uh, money exchange guys. He ran them all off. And the temple authorities came to Jesus and said, by whose authority do you do this? What right do you have to clear this temple? We're in charge here. We demand that you show us a sign. Show us a sign that will prove that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus said to them in John 2, if you tear this temple down, three days later I will raise it up. They listened to Jesus and thought that he was talking about bricks and mortar. John explains that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body and his own death and resurrection. And that sign actually took place, if you keep reading in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20. Obviously, that's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, that Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised. He rebuilt that temple of his body three days later. Now, while we're talking about signs, I want you to understand that signs are directly connected to the reason that John wrote this book in the first place. So many of you were here a couple of years ago when we went through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, passage by passage, and almost every week we made reference to John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, and it's the summary statement, it's the thematic statement for the Gospel of John. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So Jesus did lots of signs, lots of miracles that revealed or that pointed to the truth about who he was. Not all of them are written in this gospel, but some of them are written here. These are written, these signs are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this book, the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. He wrote it not to entertain you, not to educate you, not even to impress you. He wrote this book that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing the truth about Jesus, you would have life in Jesus' name. Can I just tell you, as a piggyback to that idea, that's what we do on Sundays, every Sunday, including Easter Sunday. We're not here to impress you. We're not here just to educate you. We're not here to cause some emotional experience to take place in your life. We are here to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ, to talk about Jesus in such a way, regardless of what passage of the Scriptures we're looking at, to say, how does the Scripture point us to Jesus 
so that you might believe that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That idea of life will tie in with our passage this morning. One more thing to say about the Gospel of John that pertains to our passage. The Gospel of John contains several I am statements. Statements where Jesus says, I am this, I am that. Different metaphors, different illustrations that Jesus uses to help us understand what he's like. The unique thing about John 10 is that it contains two of Jesus' I am statements. And we read it just a moment ago. Jesus says, I am the door for the sheep. And then just a few verses later, he says, I am the good shepherd. He's the door and he's the good shepherd. So here's the big idea of the passage. Very simple, perfect for Easter. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. As we work through this passage, it will become clear why we have taken two I am statements and reduced them down to one. Rather than saying he's the door and the good shepherd, we're just saying Jesus is the good shepherd. And we'll talk about why those are folded together this morning. Here's what I want us to do as we begin. We've already read the passage. I want you to think with me about what the Bible has to say about shepherds. What does the Bible say about shepherds? And I just want us to start in Genesis and kind of walk through the scriptures and think about some of the things the Bible says about shepherds. The Bible says, sometimes we don't think about this much, but the Bible says that our first parents, the very first family, was a shepherding family. God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. He gave them the task of keeping the garden and naming the animals. They were given dominion over all of the beasts of the field. They were to take care of all that God had created. And the Bible specifically says that Adam and Eve's son, Abel, was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. If you keep reading through the book of Genesis, you meet the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham. We read about Abraham, he had flocks. You read about Isaac, he had flocks. You read about Jacob. He had flocks. They were all shepherds. The patriarchs were all shepherds. It's why when Jacob's sons ended up in Egypt, the Egyptians said to them, go live in Goshen because that's where the shepherds are and you are a shepherding people. So they went and they settled in the land of Goshen. When it was time for the Hebrews to leave, their deliverer, humanly speaking, was a shepherd. You know the story of Moses. He grew up in Egypt. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. But then he ran away from Egypt and he lived in the wilderness for 40 years, keeping the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. And when it was time to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, he gave up shepherding sheep and he took up shepherding people. And if you've read that story, you know that Moses wished he could go back to the sheep. They were easier than the people. They weren't easy, but they were easier than the people. He was a shepherd. Israel's great king, not their first king, but their great king, David. What was he doing when Samuel came to anoint the future king? All the older brothers were paraded. All of Jesse's sons were paraded one by one. Nope, not this one. Nope, not this one. Nope, not this one. Is there anyone left? Well, there is the youngest, and he's out with the sheep. What did David's brothers 
mock him for. Oh, you're just in charge of the sheep. He was a shepherd, a shepherd king. And he wrote a song. He wrote lots of songs, but the most famous song that he wrote was Psalm 23, or what we call the 23rd Psalm. I mentioned to you last week that Psalm 23 today is the most searched for chapter in the Bible on the internet. And many of you have it memorized. And if you've read it or you have it memorized, you know that Psalm 23, written by David the shepherd king, begins with the words, The Lord is my shepherd. This idea of a shepherd was very important to the Hebrew people. The prophets had a lot to say about shepherds. Ezekiel's a good example of this. Ezekiel spoke for many of the other prophets when Ezekiel said, Israel has the worst shepherds ever. They're terrible. They're lousy. And he wasn't talking about the guys with the animals out in the field. He was talking about the spiritual leadership of the nation. He was talking about prophets and priests and kings, teachers of the law. And he said, we have horrible shepherds that care nothing for the sheep. And he longed for a day. He hoped for a day. He prayed for a day. He prophesied for a day when God would send a shepherd who would unite God's people in one flock. What about the Christmas story? You remember the story of Jesus born in Bethlehem? You remember that the Lord sent a a troop of angels to announce the birth of his son. He didn't send them to Jerusalem, to the temple. He didn't send them to Rome, the capital of the empire. He sent them to shepherds who were out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. This idea of a shepherd even comes down to us in the word pastor. The English word pastor comes to us through Latin, but the Greek word here in the New Testament for pastor is poimen, and it literally means a shepherd. A shepherd. From beginning to end, the Bible keeps talking about shepherds over and over and over and over again. And in the middle of all of that, as the fulfillment of all of that, John 10, Jesus looked at his followers and he said that he was the good shepherd. He was the good shepherd. One question that we want to answer this morning. What do we need to know about Jesus, the good shepherd? What do we need to know about Jesus, the good shepherd? Here's the first truth I want you to see. The good shepherd warned his people about false teachers. False teachers. In this passage, John 10, they are called thieves, robbers, hired hands, and wolves. Look at John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill, and destroy. The thief comes only to steal, and kill, and destroy. You know, I think most of my life I have heard people talk about that verse as if it is exclusively a verse about the devil. A verse about Satan. In fact, I've heard people quote that verse, and rather than say the thief comes, they say the devil comes to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I would tell you that the most entertaining sermon I've ever heard was based on John 10.10. 10. 
And it was based on the idea that John 10.10 is about the devil. I was at a youth camp in Oklahoma with a group of high school students from our church. And the speaker got up midweek. The passage for his sermon was John 10.10. And I'm telling you, it was as funny as any comedian you have ever listened to. The students were rolling with laughter. The adults were rolling with laughter. The stories were hilarious. The jokes were funny. The punchlines were delivered perfectly. It was highly entertaining. It was not very biblical. And you understand those two things don't always correlate. Lots of people who can get up and tell jokes and tell stories and take you on a roller coaster of emotions who may or may not be saying anything remotely connected to the Word of God. And in that particular story, all he kept tying this verse back to was the devil, the devil, the devil. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy. I'm not sure that that verse is about the devil. Those of you who are on the, the Bible reading plan A team, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. It will, it will embarrass your neighbors, but you know who you are. Okay, you're tracking with this plan, you're not behind, you've caught up. Can you confirm for me, this is how it is in my Bible, I just like confirmation. Can you confirm for me that in your Bibles, John 10 follows John 9? Just a nod of the head. If Your Bible's that way too? I think they're all that way. John 10 comes after John 9. You may have noticed this earlier. There's a strange little verse we read at the end of our passage. There's a reason we read it. John 10, 21. Others said, remember there's this debate about Jesus. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They're asking that question because in John 9, Jesus opened the eyes of a man who was born blind. And if you've read this week and you read John 9, then you know in John 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind. He gave him his sight. And the authorities were fit to be tied. They didn't know what to do with this. They called in the man's parents and they threatened to excommunicate them from the synagogue and they sort of weaseled out and they didn't really do anything to help their son. And then they called the man before them for not the first time and they made him give an account and the guy said look Jesus healed me and at the end of the story John 9 they excommunicate this man who was blind and whom Jesus healed they kick him out of the synagogue and then immediately Jesus starts talking about thieves robbers hired hands and wolves and he says the thief comes John 10 10 to steal kill and destroy I don't think you can separate John 9 from John 10 And I think what Jesus is talking about in John 10.10 and all the verses about thieves and robbers and hired hands and wolves and all the rest of it, he's talking about the kind of person who holds religious office, but they're not a shepherd. They can show you a business card, and it says whatever their religious title is right there on the card, but they're not a real shepherd. You can look them up on social media, and their social media profile tells you all of their spiritual titles and accolades and all the rest. But when you actually know them, they're not shepherds. The kind of men who were leaders in the synagogue, but who would kick someone out for insisting that Jesus healed them. It's a warning about false teachers. 
It's a warning that we still need to hear today because these kinds of people are still around today. You can find them all over the place. You can find them at seminary, I promise you. Lots of young men, lots of young women at seminary who want to argue and debate But they don't want to lift a finger to make a disciple. They don't want to lift a finger to serve the least among us. You can find them in churches. Some of them with the title pastor, shepherd, which is ironic. Some of them very entertaining. You'll find them at youth camps all across the country over the summer. You can find an awful lot of them on the internet. People who get lots of views, lots of downloads, lots of clicks. People love them. People share memes of them. People share clips of them. All sorts of stuff floating around online. But they're not shepherds. And they are not talking about Jesus Christ. Often they're talking about anything but Jesus Christ. Jesus warns his people about false teachers. Be warned, not everyone who quotes a Bible verse and claims religious office and says they speak for God, actually knows Jesus or has even read the Bible or is actually speaking for God. Be warned. Secondly, what do we need to know about the good shepherd? The good shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep listen to his voice. Look at John 10, verse 3 and 4. To him, the gatekeeper opens, that's the shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jump down and look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He knows them. He's going to bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. You understand there was confusion, verse 6, about what Jesus was saying about himself. But the, the image made sense to these people. They were familiar with shepherds. In Western cultures, shepherds tend to drive the sheep. That is, the shepherd will get behind the flock. Maybe they'll use a a sheep dog or a cattle dog or a horse, and they try to drive the flock where they want the flock to go, and they try to keep everyone on the same page. But in Eastern cultures, most shepherds lead the sheep. They don't push from behind, but they get out front and they call to the sheep. And those shepherds in Eastern cultures, many of them spend so much time with the sheep that they know each and every one of them and they name them. Not lamb chop or rack of lamb or roast, but like curly. Bobby, Susie, and they, they call to the sheep, and the sheep spend so much time with the shepherd that they recognize the voice and they follow. The shepherd, the good shepherd, knows his sheep. He's not just from behind pushing and pushing and pushing, but he's out in front leading, and he's calling to people that he knows, and he's calling them to follow. Look, 
This seems so silly to me to say this out loud, but in the year 2022, you have to say it out loud. When the good shepherd describes himself like this and when he says, I know the sheep and the sheep know my voice and the shepherd goes out in front of them and he calls to them and they follow him, you understand, Jesus the good shepherd actually expects his people to follow him. He really has that expectation. That when he calls you by name and he calls you to follow, that you will follow. We in the West have sort of reduced this down to you just need to pray a prayer, you just need to make a decision, you just need to do this religious ritual, you just need to check this box, you just need to go to this class, whatever. But when Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd and the sheep know him and he knows the sheep and they hear his voice and they recognize his voice and they follow, what he's saying is he actually wants to have a living, ongoing relationship with his people and he expects his people to pattern their lives on his. To follow, not just to make a decision, not just to pray a prayer, not just to walk down front at a camp, not just to do a religious, ritualistic thing but to know the shepherd and to follow the shepherd. Thirdly, what do we need to know about the good shepherd? The good shepherd promised to protect his sheep and give them abundant life. Look at John 10, 7. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jump down to verse 9. He says, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Again, I think the image here made perfect sense to the people who were listening to Jesus. It's probably a little bit out of our range of familiarity, but many times in Eastern cultures, a shepherd will keep the flock together, and at night, the shepherd wants to have all the flock safe and secure and protected. And so if that shepherd is close to home, he probably has a pen built close to the house or attached to the house where he'll move the sheep, move all of the flock into that pen. But sometimes you're not at home with the sheep. Sometimes you're out in a mountainous area, a rocky area. And in that instance, what the shepherd might do is sort of maneuver all the sheep and lead them into a cave or a crevice of sorts so that he can sort of hem them in and pin them in. Or if he's out in the field and there's no rocks and there's no caves and there's no uh, permanent pins, he might cut down brush and scrub and small trees and pile them in a circle and get all of the sheep into the middle of that makeshift pin. But in each of those instances, it was very common in Jesus' day for the doorway to be left open. And once the shepherd got all of the sheep safe and secure in the pen the shepherd himself would lay down in the opening of that door. And the shepherd would become the door. That's why we've combined those ideas into one. Who is the door of the sheep? It's the good shepherd. He's the one that makes sure all the sheep are where they need to be. They're all accounted for. And he lays down across the opening of this pen. And he provides protection. He's the way in and the way out. He leads out to pasture. He leads into safety. He promises to protect his sheep. We've seen this as we've traveled places in Africa. Some of you who have traveled around the world have seen this. You might visit a village and they've got a 
a stone wall with an opening or they've got a brush pile in a circle with an opening and there's no door and you see that and you say, I know what that is. There's a shepherd and he's got a flock. There's a man and he's got cattle and he's going to bring those animals into the pen at night and then he's going to sit down. He's going to lay across that opening and he's going to protect his sheep. That's what Jesus is describing here. He's not promising that all of his sheep in the pen will be healthy, wealthy, and happy all of the time. He is saying nothing will happen to the sheep that doesn't first have to go through the shepherd. He protects them. And he knows them. And he watches over them. And the aim in all of this is John 10.10, the second part that we didn't read earlier. He came that he might give life and give it abundantly. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. There was a tweet on Twitter this last week that was trending. People were sharing it. People were commenting on it. I wrote down what it says. The tweet was this, the original tweet. Getting married in your 20s is like leaving a party at 8 p.m. I like leaving parties at 8 p.m. If I come to your party and it's about 7.45, I'm checking my watch. I'm finding the exit. I'm strategizing. How do I get out of here and get home and get into my bed? I guess that makes me old. You understand the point of the tweet really isn't to make fun of old people or young people. The point of the tweet that people were talking about so much is to say, if you get married at this stage in life, you're going to miss out on a lot of good stuff. You're going to miss out. You're going to miss the best part of your life. You're going to ruin your life is what's really being said in that tweet. You're going to ruin your life by having a spouse and, heaven forbid, children. This will ruin your life. You will miss out on all the good stuff. It's a lie. It's a lie. People believe it, but it's a lie. And it's a cousin lie. It's a parallel lie. It's a same kind of lie that was originally uttered in the garden... When the serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say you can't eat of that tree? Is that really what he said? He said you would die? You won't die. When you read Genesis 3 and you read what the serpent said to the woman, you understand that what was being said in between the lines is, if you don't eat of that tree, you're going to miss out. God's trying to keep something good from you, something fun from you, something important from you. You're going to miss it. It's the same lie that echoes down through the ages to the present day when people think about following Jesus and many people think, ugh, following Jesus? Doesn't sound like much fun. Sounds like he's just going to boss me around. Tell me what I can't do. Isn't that what church is about? They just tell you all these things you can't do. Tell you all these things you have to do. Sounds terrible. Sounds like leaving a party at eight. It's a lie. 
I'll be honest with you. There is some stuff that Jesus wants you to miss out on. There's a lot of things he wants you to miss out on. Heartbreak, discouragement, disappointment, the pain of chasing after a little G God only to catch it and get it and realize that it will not satisfy your heart, the consequences of sin. Jesus wants you to miss out on all of that. Not so that you can be bored and a slave, but so that you can know life. Not just a little bit of life, not just decent life, abundant life. You have a choice. You've got to come down on one side of this temptation, one side of this debate, one side of this question. Do I believe that following Jesus will ruin my life? Or do I actually, actually believe that the Good Shepherd knows what abundant life is like and that only He can offer it? He said he would protect his sheep and he said he would give them abundant life. Number four, the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep when he died on the cross for sinners. Look at John 10, 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 15. The Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Those two verses are game changers. I mean, they're amazing verses. What Jesus is saying in those verses that he's the good shepherd and he came to lay down his life for the sheep. It is the exact opposite of what you would expect if you've been reading the Bible from Genesis up to this point. It's the biggest plot twist in all of dramas that have ever been written. So, look, we took a minute and we traced shepherds through the Bible. A moment ago, we sang a song called The Lamb of God. Let's just take a moment and let's trace the Lamb of God through the Scriptures. And think about the role played by the Lamb of God. It starts in the beginning. Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. The punishment that they deserved was death, but they walked out of Eden alive, and clothed. Why? Because some animal died. That's how the Lord God clothed them, with skins. Not with fig leaves, but with skins. There was a sacrifice. They walked out of Eden alive because the lamb, the sacrifice, the animal, died. Think about Abraham walking up Mount Moriah with his son Isaac. Isaac was to be the sacrifice. God was calling in Abraham's sin debt at the cost of his firstborn. But if you've read that story, you know that Abraham and Isaac walked down Mount Moriah, both very much alive. Why? Because at the right moment, the Lord God provided a ram. Caught in the thicket. On the mountain of the Lord it was provided. A sacrifice was provided. The lamb died so that Isaac could live. Think with me about the Passover. God rained down death on the firstborn of Egypt. But the very next day the Hebrew people walked out of Egypt whole and complete, not missing a person. Why? 
It's because the Passover lambs were slaughtered and the blood was smeared on the doorpost. The lambs died so that the firstborn of Israel could walk out alive. What about the Day of Atonement? That fascinating chapter buried in the middle of Leviticus. If you can make it halfway through Leviticus, you find this gem on the Day of Atonement where the people would gather together once a year and they would confess their sins and they would lay their hands on these animals. They would confess their sins over these animals. And then the people walked home away from the temple, away from the tabernacle, very much alive because the lambs died. The animals died so that the people could live. And then one day, about 2,000 years ago, a crazy man in the desert saw Jesus of Nazareth and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a strange thing to say about a man from Nazareth. He's the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. He's the one who will die so that we could live. And if you keep reading from John 1, John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, and you make it to John 10, this is where the plot twist comes in. And not many people saw it coming. It's why you read in verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used, they didn't understand what he was saying. Because Jesus said, look, I'm the door. He said that he was the good shepherd. And he said, as the good shepherd, the shepherd was going to lay down his life for the sheep. This is the part that nobody saw. It's the Lamb of God ultimately, is the good shepherd. One and the same. And it's so different than all those stories you read in the Old Testament. All those Old Testament stories, it's the animal that dies as the sacrifice so that the people could live. It's the lambs who are killed so that the people can live. And Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill all of that. And now it's the shepherd who will lay down his life so that the sheep can live. So that his people can live. One more truth. The good shepherd died, but he's not dead. Jesus rose from the dead. This is obviously what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. To be honest with you, it's what we celebrate every Lord's Day. It's the reason Christian people gather together for worship services like this, not on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. It's because this is the day that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, and the early Christians began meeting and worshiping on this day. Look at John 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I'm going to lay it down. And I'm going to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, born to be the true good shepherd 
who would lay down his life so that the sheep could live. And it happened. Jesus died on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He had no sin of his own for which to die, but on the cross he became sin for us. And no one took his life from him, but he willingly laid it down. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned the shame. He despised the shame. He did away with the shame. Because three days later, he rose from the dead in victory. And because that's true, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Good Shepherd, offers you life. He wants you to miss out on all of the things that the world has to offer. Not just so you'll miss out, but so that you can have abundant life. Let's pray together.